The following podcast is an Embassy Row production. Welcome back to another episode of The Shaken and Stirred Show. I'm Nigel Barker in New York, and you are joined by Tom Astor in Deal in England. And by the way, Tom is with his mum. Hi, Tom. And sister. And sister and son. Yeah. Yeah. Astor family affair, people. Astor family, they're all lurking around. They want to hear what I think. You can listen to it on um, Instagram. Honestly, it's well, listen to it where you can hear all good podcasts heard, can't you, Tommy? All exactly. There we go. Yeah. We love the program. They love the program. There we they go. Love the, there you go. There's an endorsement from the Astor family. I think we just we want a seal on this um, podcast. Apparently. So Tom is actually behaving himself incredibly well. He's very different this this episode. No, so he's not. if you noticed the way he behaves, he, he, he can't quite relax, which is quite funny. I've never seen him actually sit upright like this. Normally, he's sort of slouched three cocktails in. Um, but now he's actually sort of well lit, standing up, and he's wearing a collared shirt for all of those of you who are not watching, who are just listening. He looks very sort of dapper. Hi, Tommy. Hi, Nigel. You do realise we have a, a rather exciting guest today that might actually put you on the spot, might even embarrass you. Really, in what sense? I'm, I'm very, I'm not easily embarrassed. No, well, exactly. That's why I just thought I would, you know, just That's, set it up a little bit. But looking at the bio, bio, there is nothing in the bio that would indicate anything other than a perfectly reasonable Extraordinary, extraordinary you know, I know, I know. We'll get there, we'll get there. But in the meantime, what are you drinking, Tommy? Well, no, in the meantime, what do you know that I don't, actually? More I know all kinds of things that you don't. That's the reason why we do this podcast. <laughs> I uh, listen. My treat. I'm afraid. I'm going. I've got. It's boiling hot here in England. I'm by the seaside. I've just got down. I'm on a motorcycle tour with my 12 year old son. We arrived late. We got caught in a tropical rainstorm. We really did. And so everything. What's that? As, as one does in England. Gets no. It's unbelievable. It was, it, it was like one of those summer lightning thunder torrential rain uh which lasted an hour so we got waylaid and uh, we've been on the road all day so i got down to the house uh where my, where my mother and sister are and um I've, I've dug deep into the fridge and the cocktail i've come up with this evening and i believe it is still a cocktail is a white wine spritz <laughs> so literally it's, it's actually frankly all i want a glass of white wine a bit of fizzy water and a bit of ice you know, and I'm refreshed. Something tells me that you've done this before, Tom. I, I, I am shocked that you don't travel with mini bottles of vodka in your pocket. I've never done a white wine spritz, and I've never repeated myself, apart from maybe an Aperol spritz, occasionally. I'm not sure. I think we have to rewind the tape here, people. Rewind the tape. I mean, oh, all the times you've had a, an, a, a, you know, a white wine spritz. The annoying thing is, and shocking, because we are called The Shaken and Stirred Show, that I also, in this weather of beautiful warmth we're having up here in Woodstock, New York, decided to do a white wine cocktail, which <laughs> this happens all the time to you and I. Whenever you do something, I do something. We might be thousands of miles apart, Tommy, but we might as well be connected at the hip. Um, look at this delicious deliciousness. I have actually done a sangria. 
but a white wine sangria. Now, sangria is often made with red wine, so you'll see it with that kind of blush colour, made with a rosé often. I decided to go with a Sauvignon Blanc and to sort of brighten it up with some citrus grapefruit flavours. I, you know, it's, it's very simple. It's classic. Uh, I use a Joel Gott Sauvignon Blanc, and I actually took a whole bottle. We did it earlier for lunch. Poured a whole bottle. I did four ounces of Lillet uh, Blanc in it, which is a, a white vermouth. Um, and... Um, other than that, I put mint sprigs, um, I put uh, lemon, lime, a bit of apple, I put some blueberries in there. And, and, that, and that, you know, normally you top it up with soda water, right? But I decided, a club soda, but I decided to use a half open bottle of Prosecco that I had instead. Why not? I thought I'd make it a little bit more decadent, give it a little bit of, you know, some fizz. So here we have it, people. Uh, white wine sangria. Tommy, cheers. Cheers. Chin chin. Chin, my friend. Hmm. And very delicious and refreshing it is too. Exactly. No, twice. Same, same here. So on to some booze news. It is that time of day, not the nine o'clock news, people, but booze news. And we are back in India. You know, for some reason, just recently, there's been a lot of Indian booze news. And this time, once again, we are talking about monkey business. A monkey has broken into a liquor store and uh, decided to start drinking. Uh, this, there's a video of this. I guess people saw the monkey break in, watched from the window as the monkey ran into the store, went for a very specific bottle in the store, in the front window display, picked it up and started to remove the cork and, and what have you, and then start to drink. Now the owner appears, um, doesn't seem overly perturbed by the monkey, stealing the drink. Now, the monkey is a, a macaque, apparently. Is that, that's how you pronounce it. I think that's how you pronounce it, which is a, a sort of somewhat classic um, monkey from this part of India. And um, he got kind of sozzled. Now, it's, it's not the first time, apparently, either this monkey or another monkey very similar has broken into this guy's store. So I, I don't know whether he, he knows what's going on, but somehow this monkey is getting in and stealing this sort of thing. And the funny thing is he drank the entire thing and even spilt a little bit and then started to lick it up. So apparently he wasn't gonna waste anything. Now, I mentioned this isn't the first time. Well, it, it, there's, if you look at the news in India around monkeys and drinking, there happened to be another monkey in the same town about in, just a few years ago in 2018 who, was t was found drinking at the same time was breaking into stores and drinking this uh, various different bottles and they decided to, to to wean this monkey off not allow him in not allow him any more alcohol the monkey as he came down off the alcohol i guess he had a hangover was so upset he went on and bit 250 people in the village on the day of his hangover now that is a very powerful hangover people do not mess with the monkey do not take the monkey sauce away or you're going to get bitten by the monkey now um it turns out that and i love this part of the story when it comes to monkeys and humans and drinking it turns out that this macaque is not the only type of monkey to drink chimpanzees are known to make their own wine. Chimpanzees will get fruit and let it go rotten until it gets alcoholic and then they eat it. So they actually get the fruit, store it. They've noticed that when it gets alcoholic, they Fermented. get a buzz out of it. Fermented. So actually, you know, we think we're not, we're so far removed from monkeys when guys, let's face it, we think we invented wine. It was the chimps. There you have it. Booze news, people. <laughs>
Our guest today is a hugely successful model and social media sensation with over 3.2 million followers on Instagram. Her unique approach to modeling is about sharing her transformational journey to show others how they too can break free and get wild. Sounds like you, Tommy. Please welcome Rachel <laughs> Kirk. How are you, Rachel? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. No, our pleasure, our pleasure. Now you said you are where? I'm in Las Vegas. Now, is that home? It is actually. I just moved here less than a year ago. You, you look like you're in a very beautiful apartment. It's kind of ec eclectically decorated. You know, it's yeah. got, you've got some nice light going on. And do you actually shoot in this room? Is this a place where you shoot? Sometimes. I'm actually um, kind of like going through my whole house and decorating it, kind of taking my house along this transformational journey with me. So just decking it out. <laughs> I love it. We're going to get into all of it. So we've got you in Vegas. I'm in New York. We've got Tommy. You're in Deal, which is where? Kent, England. I'm on the side, yeah, I'm in by the seaside in, in Kent, in England, exactly. Which is not very, is it sunny at the moment? Have you got a, at least it's got so, a It's boiling here at the moment. It's weird, it's like sort of, it's unusual. It's like five days of hot sunshine, which is which is our summer. Wow. It's happening right now. It's five it's days five long. Days. Yeah, it's five days, you know, and yeah, it's happening. It's I'm by the sea and I've timed it right, because the last time I, did a, uh, a recording from the seaside, the same place. It was pouring with rain. It was June. I mean, it was, so so yes, that's great. And I imagine probably not quite as hot as Las Vegas. Ooh, uh, Las Vegas is probably yeah, it's over a hundred. So it's very oh, yeah. typical. <laughs> yeah, you're roasting away over there, Rachel. What are yeah. you drinking? I am uh, drinking a Moscow Mule, actually. Oh. Uh, with a little mug in a proper I, mug yeah i specifically got the mug because i was like it might be you know a disgrace if i'm not drinking out of a somewhat proper glass so went to target oh wow you, you bought the mug for the shaken and stirred show yeah i did Look at that people <laughs> now, that's respect right there tommy no excuses when you're going to do your white wine spritzes in future okay i am expecting you to go to Target and get the right glass, let alone the bloody right alcohol to go in the glass. Yeah. That's shamed so many people in one fell swoop. I love it. That's, that's great. So what's the Moscow Mule story for you? Is this something that you've always been into? When did you first have one? Yeah, so when I was like turning 21 and I could actually go to the bar legally and order my own drink, I was like, what am I going to order? Because I was so used to like, you know, being like a model, you go to the club and you just drink whatever's at the table, vodka, cranberry usually. So I asked um, my, I call her my second mother, what I should order. She said, Moscow Mule. I was like, sounds very cool, very trendy. So that's what I like to drink. <laughs> and and do, you, do you make it yourself? You're mixing these drinks too. I mean, Moscow Mule is not too complicated to, to make, is it? It's vodka yeah. and, and ginger beer, right? Vodka, ginger beer, lime, and I do a little soda water to kind of, you know, a little less sugar in there. Um, but yeah, I mean, occasionally I'll make them at home, but usually it's what I order when I'm out. Well, cheers. Cheers, cheers to you. Guys. My dear. Absolutely. Looking fantastic. Sounding delicious. Mm, mm, mm. Mm -hmm. So take us back. You've been, look, you're, you're a very successful model at this point. You've got millions of followers and I've been following you for, for some time and you know, I've obviously been myself working in the industry for 
almost 30 years. And so I, I probably was clearly working before you even were born, right? So, <laughs> yeah. you know, I, I, my entire career, I, I've sort of, I've known of you for years actually at this point, and it, I've seen you transform. So this whole transformational journey, I've watched you, I've watched you go through all kinds of haircuts, all kinds of styles, living all over <laughs> the world, moving all over the place. I've seen your numbers rise, because I think I, when I first started following you, you didn't even have a million followers. So you are, you are, you, you've really sort of changed a lot. But take us back to yourself as a kid. Where did you grow up and what was your sort of childhood like? Um, so I grew up in a pretty small town in Washington State called Maple Valley. And yeah, just very humble upbringing. Um, it's a very normal kid, small town. What did mom and dad do? Uh, my dad, he was... You know, he did all sorts of things that had to do with working in the garage. Uh, he was a hydraulic mechanic, um, things like that. Cars, he works on cars. And then my mom was a house cleaner. And you, you are you the only kid? No, I have a brother. He is my fucking homie. I love him. He's 22. He just turned 22. So he's oh, younger so than me. He's a, bit, he's a little bit younger than you. And how old are you now, if you don't mind me asking? I'm 26. 26. So, you, so there's a little bit of distance between the two of you. It's like a four-year gap. Were you sort of big sister then and very, and he was, w w did you feel that dif that distance? Yeah, for sure. Especially like when we were younger, I always wanted to take care of him. He was like my little buddy. I just was super protective of him. And now we're, we're more just like best friends and he's more protective of me. But yeah. See, I mean, I'm looking at your, your bio too. You talk about you started your career at 14, age 14. Mm -hmm. That already gives you sort of 12 years of modeling experience at the, at the young age of 26, you know, so, or 28, right? In, that, in this period, I'm curious to know, like, when you first started, 14, there's a lot of big models in the industry. Christy Turlington, Cindy Crawford, uh, Elle McPherson, Naomi Campbell, uh, Tyra Banks all started when they were 14 yeah. it, but it's a really young age I mean it's, it's so young it's so young right my daughter's 12 and I mean she's going she's about to be 13 so I know it's like a year from now and I'm like that's just bonkers in a way what, what tell what was it like how did you get into it and also coming from that small town Washington State what on earth gave you the idea that you wanted a model I know, right? So I was actually 13 and I was scouted and it was just, I was walking around in the mall with my mom and my grandma um, and this lady basically was stalking me <laughs> and eventually she came up to me and suggested that I go to an open call and um, I was pretty interested. It wasn't something that I'd like thought about before, um, but I was like, yeah, that sounds like I might want to investigate this a little bit so i went to uh, i went to the open call and essentially i got signed with elite in new york when i was 14. it's a little baby ray and, and so you know you you're, you're signed at that age but were you into fashion were you into the business not at all um i think what was intriguing to me about it was get, just getting to do something different than everyone else in my town it was like um, just breaking out of the norm and getting to travel um, and do something that could, you know, help me be independent. 
So, you know, and, and you, when I speak to a lot of these girls, when I, when I know, I mean, obviously talking to Naomi, talking to Christy, you know, these are well-known supermodels and what have you, but they all, off, their stories are quite similar. I mean, you know, Christy I mean, is specifically as far as, you know, coming from sort of, you know, a small town, being scouted and then getting into Elite, you know, one of those big agencies like Elite, yeah. which obviously was known for its competitions and for its model searches and what have you, and for finding and making people Elite Model of the Year and all that kind of stuff. I mean, Coco Rocha also has a similar story, which is kind of like that being discovered and, and brought to... You know, was it easy for you at that age? And, and even what were the first few like years like? Take us into that point, because I think a lot of people who are listening to this, and we have a lot of people who are obviously into fashion and modeling industry who listen to this podcast because of my yeah. audience. And I think there's a lot of people who just don't know, because I get asked all this at the time, like, when should I start modeling? What's it like? Like, what do I do? What and, and I, you know, I don't know for what it's like as a woman, obviously, to, to to be a model and you be a young girl. I started modeling when I was eighteen, nineteen, and it was a different era, right? But nowadays, mm -hmm. fourteen, you know, is really young. What was it like for you? How did it feel? Was it weird? Yeah, I mean, it was very strange um, because, I mean, being a girl like fourteen, I had no idea who I was. Um, it was super awkward and you'd go into these agencies and I was so intimidated not only by the agents but by the other I mean beautiful tall girls in these heels who can walk and I'm just like um I'm Rachel like you know a bit insecure and I had no idea really what I was doing um and it was really hard uh I went to Tokyo when I was 14 on a on an eight-week contract which i think a lot of girls do when they first start um these new york agencies are like okay you need experience go overseas to tokyo where they love like that young cute kawaii girl and um get some experience and so that's what i did and it was very you know there were there were highs and lows for sure i was like oh my god i'm traveling this is amazing all my friends think this is so cool and then there was like i am competing against other girls and i'm getting weighed at the agency to make sure i'm not gaining weight and there was all this pressure i felt to make money so that you know my grandparents who invested in me going there you know I, so that i could pay them back so it was it was tough did you go alone or did you did you got your mother go with you or anyone go with you when i was 14 my mom did go with me for half the time and then actually my grandma came in and took her place for the second month yeah because I, actually it's funny because you know when i met my wife even and she was 18 19 years old um her father was with her then too i mean you know there's mm -hmm. And for everyone out there, I mean, this is a common story. Models will get sent overseas in order yeah. to build their portfolios in to get that sort of bit of experience. And, you know, the big market is the U.S. normally. Um, and there's yeah. obviously places like Paris, which have these the sort of the big, some of the big international fashion houses. But other than that, you go to the, perhaps some of the smaller markets to kind of, you know, cut your teeth a little bit. And But, but also... It's a bit like the Wild West, right? Because you, you you tell us, I mean, there must have been stories, especially I know Japan and, and I, my wife did similar trips to Singapore and Japan and Tokyo and, and things like that, where, you know, were there any funny stories, anything ever happened along the way when you were out there that you just, you know, can't believe and laugh about now? 
I mean, funny stuff all the time. Like this is such a long time, time ago now. I went, I went also when I was 16. And I think the funny thing about Tokyo is just how much you stand out as a model. It's just like, you just feel, at least I felt like just this big, awkward white person there all the time. And that was just kind of funny. And then also there was this store called Don Quixote or something. I don't even know how to say it, but it was just this ridiculous store and you'd go in there and everything is like bright and colorful and there's like costumes and nails that are like this long with diamonds all over it. So that kind of stuff was really fun to see in Tokyo. It's like, where is this coming from? But yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, Tokyo is definitely a complete trip. In fact, if, you know, yeah. if anyone's ever traveled out there, they don't do anything like write the street names in English or anything like that. It's all in no. Japanese, you know, script or what have you. So it's, it's quite hard to kind of to move around. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I guess so. So let's so, to bring us forward a bit now. You know, you've you've got this success. You've got all these millions of followers. But you decide you you something happened. You decided to sort of take control of your career to some extent because. You know, this whole you know, social media in itself is a tool and can be a tool for models. And yeah. I feel like you you kind of grabbed it and have molded it and decided to kind of create your own fan base in your own way and, and control your thing. What was, what was, how did you, first of all, like, when did you get into it? The sort of, mm-hmm. I guess, Instagram and all of that. And when did you realize, actually, this is going to be really, this could be really good. It's going to be a changing point for me. Yeah, I mean, this whole thing has obviously been such a process. Um, I moved to Los Angeles when I was like 18. And I remember going to castings, um, modeling castings, that they would ask how many followers the girls had on Instagram. And I was like, what? And I was super upset by this, actually. And a lot of traditional models were upset by this that I've talked to. Um because we felt like it was unfair or whatever. Uh, But basically I realized that that's what clients want now is a model who has followers. So I just made it a priority to post pictures of myself and I had tons of them because I was a model. So it wasn't super hard. Um, I also mastered the selfie for sure. (laughs) And um, I just started posting pictures because I was like, well, this is going to supplement my modeling career. So this is a priority now. And then, like you said, over time, I kind of realized if my social media is big enough, I don't really need an agency anymore. I can kind of do things on my own. I can, you know, people can message me directly. Um, I can message people directly too. And I can have more control over the direction that I want to go and how I want to look and be perceived and all of that. No, it's it's fascinating, and, and actually, I want to get into all of that. But you know, you you sort of mentioned the, it was un, the models thought it was unfair, you know, that that sort of girls with so high social media followings might be perhaps more desirable for the client. But why did you think it was? And do you, do you still think it's unfair at this point now that you're one of the girls with the big followings? I mean. It's tough. It's, it's basically just accepting the fact that the industry has changed and the, you know, advertising in general has changed. Lots changed. Um, but originally it was like, well, what if I'm just a better fit for the job? You know, like all of us work so hard to, you know, stay in shape and we all have unique looks and 
I think it was just like feeling like people who had followers were getting a leg up. It just seemed like our, all of our hard work was just kind of getting discredited and, you know, people that just happened to blow up on Instagram were getting the advantage. Now, you know, I definitely don't see it like that as much because I see all the work that the people put into Instagram and YouTube and all of that. It's a whole, whole nother game, really. Um, and so I think it's well-deserved. There used to be like a stigma for me, at least about around being called an Instagram model. Um, because I was like, no, I'm a traditional model. I, you know, I did the whole damn thing in New York. I run around like a crazy maniac to castings for fashion week. I'm not an Instagram model, but I think over time that term kind of changed meaning for me. And I was like, you know, being an Instagram model is a lot of different things and it, it gives you a voice. So I have a lot of respect for all the people on Instagram now. I, you know, it's funny. Also, like, Nige, Nige, sorry, just to interrupt you. This is with the time frame here. We're talking about eight years, right? I mean, what you're talking about is everything. This has all happened in the last eight years. What do you, what dare I accept? Because I know Nige wants, wants to answer this question. What's next? What's, 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 I mean, Instagram. Is it still is it still a source of work for you? Is it still working for you? Yeah, definitely it is. And honestly, I've been surprised by that. There's been a lot of times in my career where I felt felt like, oh, something new is going to come along and Instagram is going to kind of fade away. But it's really stuck around quite well. I think the only difference is that it's going to be more, um, people are going to just want more. So more live stuff, more YouTube, all of that. But I don't know. I think it's, I think it's here for a while. I mean, you know, so actually sort of going back to, you know, you mentioned, you know, this whole concept of, of models with Instagram followings, being an Instagram model. Um, and I, I, when I first read, you know, sort of the bio that was provided to us <laughs> on you and I knew you already, but I was like, okay, it's always interesting to see what people say about themselves or what yeah. they what their agents present and i literally read in the first line i started my career as a traditional model and i just read that and was like what what's that what does, like, that, what mean? You, what does that even mean and then i read later on this sort of instagram thing and now when you say it and that, now the thing is is that i think that you still have a kind of a slight not a chip on your shoulder about it but not in a bad way but i do feel there is a part of you that still is living in that moment that you can't get away from where you know that what you used to do and what you changed but i would argue that now just being a model is synonymous with just working all these different angles right it doesn't make you one or the other any model needs to take care of their instagram needs to take care of TikTok or whatever else they might be doing because it's a platform right it's mm -hmm. almost like a portfolio it's an extension of what of who you are yeah exactly it is essentially the new version of a portfolio instead of making sure that you have updated photos in this big book that you carry around with you you need to make sure that your instagram reflects who you are what you're about and what you look like what you're capable of for brands so, so. all of you out there who's listening you all know me you know that i've been in this business for years you know that i did a show called america's next top model and the face with naomi campbell and all this stuff and you know this is and when i i was a model right so for everyone out there the modeling industry this is how it used to work a girl would could be discovered 
by a photographer, by a designer, by an editor, by an agent, right? Those were pretty much the four ways you were found. Then a, a magazine, you, an, an agent would, would then speak to a photographer or a photographer would find a girl, might make her a muse. A fashion designer might say, I want to create a collection around you. And if you look historically, and I've written books about this, I have a book called Models of Influence, you'll see an entire model career was built by an editor falling in love with a model look and personality, a fashion designer turning her into a muse and deciding that he's going to create the whole, like whether it's Dior or Balmain or you know, whoever it might have been, Valentino, who had various models that they were, like, would find Iman and then build an entire collection around Iman. And, you know, and, and, and their career was launched, you know, when the muses that Avedon had, Irving Penn had, you know, where they would just be fascinated on, on someone and build their career and that model's career. But the interesting thing here is, is that you know, the, the audience, the world didn't know what they were, you know, we just had to accept what was being given to them, right? Yeah. Up to Anna Wintour to put someone on the cover who she picked, right? Not yeah. what you picked, the world, not you, the consumer. So what, what, what are you doing, Rachel, now? What's happened, right, is the reverse. What the power has been taken from the few and given to the many. Right. And so that is what was the interesting thing about where some models were upset because they said they'd done the work. I get they'd done the work. But what I believe social media did was actually democratize the fashion industry in a way that you've yeah. never seen before. Because instead of it being some photographer who, for whatever reason, had a crush on a girl or thought that she was this or that, or some fashion designer that said, to, to hell with curvy models in the 80s. I want Kate Moss because I'm all about androgyny right now and, and heroin chic and I'm going to do this, you know, or some fashion designer say, or, you know, I want to create a collection around this person like Anna Sui or what have you. It, it Now it's the people. It was the people saying, actually, I like Rachel. I like what she's about. I'm going to like her and I'm going to follow her. And all of a sudden, you know, I was asked a really interesting question. I'd love to know your opinion on it. But mm -hmm. Vogue, you know, a while back, you know, put Kanye West and Kim Kardashian on the cover of Vogue. And a lot of people were up in arms saying, how is Kim Kardashian and Kanye West on the cover of Vogue? And I think, I mean, now it seems less weird a question. But at yeah. the time, I'm not sure if you remember, but it, was, it was a bit of a big deal when they were on the cover mm -hmm. of Vogue. Um, but a lot has changed. I mean, I think it, you can, I'd love to know, what do you, what do you think of that before I give my opinion, but what do you think of, of, of sort of social media and, and sort of celebrities from social media and from pop culture being on the cover of Vogue? Yeah. I mean, I totally remember that happening and I remember just celebrities and, and things like that, just being on the cover of magazines more and more often. And I was, again, because I feel like I grew up more seeing models and stuff like that on the covers of magazines. So it was a change. And I, I also kind of was like, what the fuck? Like, it's not fair. Now you have to be famous to be on the cover of Vogue or whatever. Um, but yeah, I mean, it also makes so much sense because like you said, it's, it's the people, it's the majority kind of voting almost for who they want to see in these, in these places. And I think it's, it's kind of fun that way now. I mean, you see TikTok stars on the cover of huge magazines and like they're more relatable people. And I think that's, 
it's actually kind of cool. Right? The, the talent base is what's different. It's that it's not yeah. just about, and this has been a movement that's slowly happening and it's mm -hmm. been ever so slow, but the fashion industry was guilty of finding people who were potentially just only pretty to put on yeah. covers yeah. of magazines. And now it's actually what you're saying, doing, behaving. And this, let's face it, folks, what really makes someone have sex appeal? I mean, when you see someone in a bar, it's not because you saw a picture of them on the wall. It's because of the way they sat at the bar, the way they moved, the way they walked across the room, the way they perhaps crossed their legs or moved their body or picked up their drink or, you know, it's the, it's those small moments, right? That's what chemistry is about. And in a way, Mm -hmm. Social media is a better job of capturing that and sharing that than any still photo that will ever do. So it's it's not shocking that people are kind of falling in love and getting and and when I say falling in love, I don't mean it in the classical sense. I mean it more in the in the kind of like the, the fascination sense that people are doing, yeah. you know, with people. I mean, you've got to have. I would imagine a, a very eclectic sort of following, you know, follower base. You know, what is your what is your demo like? What are, what are your sort of who are your followers? Do you know who they are? Um, I actually haven't looked in quite a while. It's definitely a lot of men, which is, you know, I'm not upset about that or anything, but it's a lot of men and a lot of um, there's a lot of U.S. and Mexico, which I love Mexico and I love my Mexican <laughs> followers. Um but yeah, it's a huge range. And that's kind of one of the fun things about it is like, I'll get messages from people, men and women from all over the world. And it's very, um, I don't, I don't really know what the word is for that. It just kind of brings us all together in a way. And we all have a common interest, which is that we like to connect and we like to find people that we like on Instagram and, you know, it's interesting. Is it, can, I, can I ask if you were... Are you now forcing, so by having all these followers, how do you, so someone like me doesn't really, I'm not, I'm not, I really don't even pretend to start knowing how Instagram works and how you kind of like monetize something like having 2 million plus followers. Is it, is it because you're now forcing the hands of the magazines to have to put you in the magazines because of your followers? I mean, how does it work? How do you make a living out of having 2 million followers? Uh, that took me a long time to figure out, honestly. Um, once I had a million followers, I was kind of getting the hang of that, but I didn't know how to monetize it for a really long time, other than just to utilize it to, you know, give myself a leg up to book modeling jobs and stuff like that. Um, there's a few different ways you can do it, but yeah, one of them is just by gaining popularity in general and then more brands just want you just because if you post that you're shooting for this or that all those eyes are going to go look at that brand or that magazine or whatever. So that's definitely one way. And another way is to just start your own thing, whatever that is. So you can start a brand or whatever and, and sell it to people. Um, yeah, there's a few different, a few different ways to monetize it. And it definitely took me a long time and I'm still figuring it all out. Cause it's like a whole new field almost. And I, I had no idea really what I was getting into in the first place because it's definitely possible to have a huge Instagram account and not really be able to monetize it. For all of you out there too listening to this, if you, you know if you think that's unusual at all that a model might 
figure out how to make their own money without an agent. If you if you look at historically, the most successful models in history all did this, right? So Cindy Crawford is a great example who negotiated her own Revlon um, campaigns uh, and what have you. You have um, also Elle McPherson who decided to create her own lingerie line and swimwear line. And she was the very first model ever to do that, right? And so she, she used to work for, and do all these other lingerie swimsuit ads. And then she was like, wait a second, I want to do my own. And she took the whole thing and ran her own business. It's now a multi-billion B. It's with a B, people. Business, okay? So there are big bucks in taking the job into your own hands. And why wear someone else's swimsuit when you can wear your own, right? And now there are lots of so hang on, you just Rachel was just saying that there are brands that come in and and you know and and the, the, you know they'll they'll the, the pay you to promote their brands and stuff if you like it. So the next quite the obvious next question is your brands. I mean, how to monetize it with all these followers? Are you in a position now, like these people, to to start you know pushing your own lingerie lines, swim swimwear lines, and is that something that you're that you're that you're that you're thinking of doing? Yeah, I mean, I I really did do that. Um, it was just a year and a half ago. I was shooting for magazines like Treats and Playboy. And I was like, this doesn't pay that great. It's great exposure and it's fun to shoot the stuff, but I could definitely take photos like this on my own and sell them. And I did that. I made a magazine, essentially. It was a magazine online that people would pay a subscription for and made a lot of money. And I got to shoot what I wanted to shoot, where I wanted to shoot it, and with whom I wanted to shoot. So I got to take control and, yeah, make money doing something that I was already doing for other people for way less money. So, so you haven't yeah. just taken over like a swimwear. Okay, so you've taken over Condonast and you're taking over the brands in the in the magazine. You're doing everything. <laughs> I mean, maybe not quite to that level, but I mean, yeah, there, there's no way you could shoot what we were shooting and make that kind of money um, unless you had a bunch of followers to buy it. So, yeah, there's a new kind of new sounds way like, of doing things. Sounds like it. sounds like a def the future, as it were, you know, and, especially with something like Condonats. I gotta say, we, or we had a, they had a, a, a title called Brides Magazine in England, which is one of the that one of their biggest selling magazines that did brilliantly. They did a deal with an online company in America and they sold a bunch of titles and they chucked this bride's magazine in with it. It infuriated me because I had a wedding venue and I loved it. And it was literally the only magazine worth reading about weddings <laughs> and stuff. But they chucked, they basically sacrificed this thing to this online um, uh, company in America who'd never used it. So they just killed this actually quite successful thing. But um, they were selling to the online, some online marketing um, company in America that just had all this money and were, and were willing to pay them. Is this the future? Is this where it's going to go? I mean, do you think, do you think the kind of, you know, the actual published, you know, the paper kind of magazines that you, that you read, do you think, is the future publishing what you're, what you're talking about, like kind of owner, you know, owner controlled, um, lots of different publications by in, lots of different individuals? Um, and do you think the likes of Vogue and all of that, those big magazines are going to slowly, their readership is starting to, you know, it'll just diminish? What do you think? I mean, I hope not, because you bring up actually a really good point, which is that in starting this magazine, originally the idea was to have it be print. And 
we got more interested in just doing it online because of the money. It's way cheaper to just put it online and charge people for it. So we kind of did it in a way that was, you know, we were still focused on the art of it, but it was also very money driven. And so I hope that magazines and whatnot, I think, and I think people will begin to to crave that again more because it's more focused on the art. It's not all about just making money and selling a bunch online. It's, you know, there's, there's a little bit more to it, having something in your hands that someone, you know, printed and put all the effort into to making. So I think hopefully they're still going to be around for a while. Well, Nigel will be really pleased to hear that. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, I, I mean, look, I think that ultimately there's no doubt that the magazine industry is either, it's definitely evolving. Mm -hmm. And to some extent, some would argue has already died. Um, you know, and they have been very slow on the, on the uptake when it comes to the digital era, just period, because it was against their, their whole you know, the way they operated. It wasn't, you know, they were about printing magazines and yeah. selling magazines on shelves. And then the digital era came around and it was, they sort of fought it. And a lot of people were like, no, this is just a fad. They didn't see, they didn't look into the future and see what was happening. And, you know, it's, I've said this before, but, you know, if you look at things like Nat Geo and Discovery, they were magazines. National Geographic mm -hmm. is one of the oldest magazines in the world. And they were very smart, very early on, to realize what was happening and create a television network to create digital content. And actually now people don't even really half the time remember that National Geographic is in fact a magazine that you find in doctor's offices and dentists and what have you. But it's a, it, they think of it as a TV show and it's about animals and you watch it like some show. And, and it's you know, and same with Discovery. Discovery was a magazine uh, that, that is now this big Discovery Channel. You know, so, and then in the fashion era, Vogue kind of missed it. Vogue could have been the Vogue television and fashion TV years before anyone else had the chance, but they kind of resisted because it felt like a sellout. It yeah. felt, and it's the same way, like you said, traditional model versus yeah. Instagram model. You felt like a sellout if you were an Instagram model. You were cheating. You were kind of not as good. It was, and that's how this has been approached. And I think there's been some real smart people like yourself, Rachel, who sort of got past and Coco is the same way. Coco Rocha, who's also mm -hmm. a guest on the show, has said the same thing. Like she saw early on, it was there was this definite channel going through social media where you could control your own destiny and you could be in charge of what you wanted to do, how you wanted to say it. Um, and, and you could change things up, you know, and, and obviously that's what you've done. Now, I kind of want to get back to you know, and this is just like a fashion thing, but you mentioned your audience being predominantly male, right? Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of fashion models, if they're fashion models specifically, you know, that and magazines like a Vogue, they're not advertising or marketing to men, right? right. They're marketing to women, right? So it's a, it's a different type of picture. It's a different type of thing. At what point did you decide, okay, you know, I get, I, I get who I am or I get what I want to do and I'm going to go after the male market or, or did you think that way? I'm just curious, was it a thought process? Did you take control of it or did it just kind of happen and you fell into it? Honestly, that part of it just kind of happened just because of the kinds of photos that I had to post. At the time I was living in LA when I was really starting to build up my Instagram and I was shooting a lot for PacSun and whatnot in like little bikinis and stuff and 
that was just what I was posting. And so that was what was working. And I just kind of went with it rather than resisting it. I definitely had a lot of um, agents and stuff be like, well, you should really start posting more, um, you know, fashion stuff or makeup and stuff for, for women so that they can follow you because those are the kinds of things that, you know, you can do brand deals with a really big makeup company and make a lot of money. And I was not interested in fashion or makeup or any of that. So I was like, you know what? I like posting photos of myself in bikinis or just cute photos and me having fun and whatever. So I was more focused on just creating the content that I wanted to create. And that's just kind of what, what happened from it, honestly. <laughs> well, you know, you, I've, I've been following you for some time and you mentioned Playboy already. Now, clearly you've had this conversation on your social media about nudity and about how mm -hmm. you're comfortable with it. And it's, you know, coming from Europe, you know, you work with a lot of models who, and you work in markets where nudity is nothing. It's blase. Right. I don't care. Like if I, you know, grew up, I, I spent three years working in Italy, you know, being topless in a picture or it wasn't even, it wasn't even a thing. Like you, you weren't right. even, models weren't even asked or it was just like, yeah, here's your outfit. And it would be like the bottom half only. And you'd be sent to set and, and no one would think, oh, I'm topless walking to set. Like people would just, do their thing, walk straight on set and be completely normal. And it would be a fashion shot and it would be going in vogue, by the way. Right? Mm -hmm. my, my wife and her twin sister did a 16 page editorial wearing nothing with, it was a hair ad um, and Fabrizio Ferri shot it, right? And, and, and it was this gorgeous, incredible photo shoot, high fashion, naked. Fashion people, <laughs> where was mm -hmm. the fashion? There wasn't any, but um, <laughs> but there was a hairstyle, um, but, and, and that's it. But it's you know, it, there's this there's this sort of cross, right? There's this sort of interesting area in the fashion industry where there is sort of fashion and nudity and the sensuality, and then it crosses over into sort of men's nudity, you know, nudity that perhaps men are more into, and it's and it kind of undulates, right? Mm -hmm. What what was your experience of that, and, and at what point did you go, okay? You know, that maybe this is more lucrative or I'm more interested or I just don't care, you know? Yeah, I mean, that's actually an interesting question because that's been a, a journey for me too, especially being like a young woman. It's like really feeling out and figuring out what I am okay with, what I'm not okay with. What is the difference between art and just something that you're just selling for sex or whatever? And it's it's been something that I started out with it shooting with one of my favorite photographers my homie Robert Voltaire and we just shot beautiful photos and it's it's also like my family is artists and so drawing you know the the naked body is very normal and creating art with the body is one of my favorite forms of art it's amazing and I love to be a part of that um but there was definitely a time where, you know, especially in the last like year, this whole OnlyFans thing has become very tempting, you could say, because people are making so much money selling nudes or just more sexual type of things rather than the more sensual, which I think is, I think there's a difference. Um, and so I did shoot some stuff that was more like, more just to be sexy just to catch people's eyes just so they would buy it and it was very unfulfilling um not doing that anymore 
And then there's, you know, the stuff that I would shoot for my magazines or just for Playboy or whatever, where it was like, we're creating art, we're creating something beautiful that I love. And it's a completely different vibe for me. Um, but yeah, that whole thing has, has totally been a process. And it is interesting because to me, I love, I love my body, but it's not like, I don't know. It's, it's an interesting thing. Like, I don't think it's a big deal to be topless. It's just, it's just how I feel about it. And there are other countries, like you mentioned, that it isn't a big deal, but in America, it is a big deal. So there was an opportunity for me to capitalize on the fact that people in America, especially think that it's a big deal. So if people wanted to pay me money for a topless photo, I was like, well, I may as well, you know, take them up on that, even though I don't think it's a big deal. So it's, it's been an interesting journey about around that. I mean, it's, there's a bigger question here, though. I mean, let's let's face it. it I, I mean, I'm a, a women's um, empowerment advocate. I'm about women's rights, and I do feel actually that you having the right to be topless is your right, and mm-hmm. and I, I feel that it is completely unfair, regardless of whatever anyone you know that, that that for example on Instagram, men can be topless. And women cannot, right? That mm-hmm. that there is this rules that, and they like to say that it's it's fair. But let's face it, people, e- equality means the equal opportunity, equal rights, and we don't have that in our the, these most liberal of programs like Instagram, like Facebook, like. And, and you, it's like, look, guy, and I'm sure you probably agree. But what what are you, what's your take on this? Because everyone, I want to get off my soap, soapbox, but you know, this whole the sort of hashtag free the nipple or whatever it might be you know like where do you stand on this and and do you think I mean it's it's worth fighting for now I mean I I think so I I it's definitely not equal the thing is I'm I'm monetizing the fact that it's not equal right now so for that you know I've I've been in a weird way kind of thankful for it because I think it's a bit ridiculous but it's also for a lot of women right now it it is a way to make money so that's great however I don't think it needs to stick around and I do think that if we can kind of drop the stigma around that it would be very liberating for women it's you know there's so many reasons that women want to be able to just be topless other than to be sexy it just feels good, natural. There's there's so many reasons. So I hope that it does shift and that America can catch up to some of these other countries where you go to the beach in a woman's topless and it's not a big fucking deal. What is the problem? I mean, literally, what is it? It's so weird. It's like a Scottish Presbyterian thing, maybe. I don't know. Or some. It's all actually. A, in fact, I'm gonna I'm gonna put this. I'm gonna lay this one out there. It's religious sentiment, which is basically the bowing of nudity and the covering up and the oh, no, you can't do this. It's it's a, it's really it's it's a, it's, a, it's a kind of it's a it's a byproduct of it's a hangover from a time when you know when no, women had to cover up and show an ankle and all the rest of it. Victorian, you know, um, Michelangelo, Michelangelo in the Sistine Chapel in in Rome, all the pictures, all the paintings were naked, completely naked. Yeah. Exactly. So what's then, the problem? Then they hired an artist to go in oh, 200 years later and cover. Oh. Cover. Exactly. Done by a different a, artist. 
but it was a really it was the religious zealots right it was a religious so, so let's get on let's get look I, I, I agree if you look at france and italy you'd think well you know you've got on the beach there you've got lots of topless people and they're on bass island i mean what's the problem right um right. And, but as you said you know you've got the only fans thing when you're you know making it's not equal you're making money from doing topless images which you know, I mean, Nige would be doing topless images left, right, and centre if he could make the same kind of money that you know you could or, or someone else could on that. So it's it's not equal, and it's weird that, that there is this sort of disparity in, in like this this kind of voyeuristic thing. I don't know, but, mm -hmm. because the, it's, 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 I don't know, some sort of degree of suppression that's been going on for too long that now needs to cut. Kind of, now needs to just be level the playing field and just somehow and stop the stop the silliness now yeah yeah it's very it's very interesting and it's interesting too how much social media these social media platforms like facebook and whatnot have such a huge impact over you know what we are and aren't allowed to share and how that shapes kind of our culture okay. have you have you ever actually sorry again i've always thought you had a bit of a kind of i've always been a little bit suspicious of a guy who created a like a platform in which he can actually make friends. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. It's a, to me, it's not. It's never been so. But but it is. It's, it's a, it is. It's a weird thing, isn't it? It's like kind yeah. of like who 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 are the who are the kind of um, uh, morality police when it comes to Facebook? When it comes to as nice said, Instagram, you can have naked topless male models. You can't have topless. I didn't actually know that topless female models. You know. Who are the morality police here? Who are they answering to? I mean, who's 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 controlling this? Who who are the people who are who are actually saying, "Oh, yes, this is a very good idea. Let's enshrine this in law or or some sort of you know." Pro I mean, who who's to, who's responsible for this, and how how how's it going to change? How are we going to change it? I mean, how, what does one need to do in order to kind of level the playing field? Do you think? I mean, how how is it? How are we going to level the playing field? I mean. I don't know. I think it has, it's the same kind of question around just the freedom of speech. Like there's a lot of things that we can't say on these platforms too. Can't post certain things. And I mean, as long as we click accept when we sign up for these social media platforms, it's, it's not going to change unless they are like, you know what? Screw it. You guys can do whatever you want. <laughs> but freedom of speech is a fir first amendment, right? Right, um, but mm -hmm. to bear your chest naked is there's no there's that's not in the there's no there's no right there is certainly not now at least not in this yeah in this country. Um, you know I, I mean I'm I'm curious too I mean there, there must have been a time and there is in a, in a lot of you know certainly in the fashion industry where it's not all just fun and games it, you know it can be quite it can be quite seedy too. The industry and that's, i think that's part of the issue sometimes too is this is that and it doesn't have to do with being naked or topless people this is just the industry of of of, of women especially young women working in a business where people are monetizing that someone's sexuality sensuality and it happened to me okay that's what i mean by it's not just women it happened to me as a young male model i had was approached by many people uh, in, in times where it was very uncomfortable for myself and I'm just curious whether you also experienced that. And of course, there's been the whole Me Too movement that's, that's been out recently, and it's still a big deal. But there's a lot of people that, you know, certainly in the fashion industry, and I'm not looking to name any names at this point, I just mean more of a general 
kind of question as to your experience in this world of, you know, especially when you are, you know, you've got such a large male audience and that you are comfortable in your body, whether that's something that's, because that doesn't mean that it's okay for everybody or anybody just to do or say what they want with you because you're okay with it, mm -hmm. right? And, and that, then you'll see there's a lot of big famous models who are comfortable being perhaps topless or nude or whatever, but it's it's on their terms. It's not on just because someone says it. So I'm just curious what you're, if you've had any kind of rough experiences in that world at all. Yeah, I mean, especially when it comes to shooting anything sexy or topless or nude, it's like something I learned early on was, you know, being particular with who I shoot these things with because I have had experiences where you're shooting and it's very normal, you know, for um, your agency to just send you to a location, to a studio, and it's just you and a photographer, maybe there's a makeup artist. Um, and it can get weird quick if you're not, you know, careful or smart or, you know, maybe your agency isn't protective of you. Um, and so I've been in situations where not, you know, thankfully nothing has ever like really happened. And I've always been very on guard, but where I've just been like, you know, I'm like a little uncomfortable. And, and so thankfully, like I was able to, you know, know from really early on that I don't just shoot sexy stuff or shoot anything with just anyone. And a lot of my nudes and, and whatnot are shot by one person. And that's because I trust him very much. And I trust him in so many, in so many different ways, um, because it's important to have that. And, in order to create an amazing image too. I think you, you need to have that trust and that comfortability. Right, no, 100%, 100%. Now, sort of changing a bit here, going back to something you, at the very uh, at the beginning, you, you talked about taking selfies and stuff, but you also sort of, you know, you take a, a bunch of your own pictures. Is that, do you, and that's normal for social media, but talk to us about what, I mean, what is it? How do you take a selfie? <laughs> if I want to learn from an expert, here's someone with 3.2 million followers who knows how to take a selfie. I mean, you've got a pretty good face on you, so it can't be that difficult, but what are your tricks? <laughs> that's so funny. I actually made a YouTube video on this one time. And it's really funny to bring this up. I don't take selfies as often anymore because it just feels weird, but it's all about the lighting. I want to do, you know. do it with you, Rachel. Come on, I've got my camera here. We're going to do a selfie. Come on, what's going on? Come on, show me now. So, well, I'm learning. I'm still learning so many things because these iPhone cameras are getting so much better. But one, mine always but has like coconut you oil. How you do a selfie first, and then I, I, I'm going to we'll cross notes. Come on, then. Okay. So first, make sure your lens is clean because mine always has um, lotion or coconut oil or something on it. <laughs> And then you have to face the window. Window light is by far the best for a selfie. And um, yeah, it's a little something like this or like this. And like a little like, you know, soft, <laughs> soft in your mouth and like look up like, oh, hey, like, oh, just being cute, you know. And a little bit, you know, got to tilt the phone down a little bit so that I don't know why that actually it just makes you look good makes your eyes look bigger, I think. <laughs> there you have it, people. How to take a selfie from Rachel Cook. Unbelievable. <laughs> you know, the only difference, and actually I've done this a few times myself, when the only thing I often say to people is because a lot of people will put this, the camera really high up mm. and shoot down at themselves. And I always say like, when was the last time you ever saw a fashion photographer or me on top of <laughs> 
shooting a model and you go right above their head and shoot right on top of their face. I'm like, we don't do it. But people do it because they're trying to get rid of the, the old double chin. So when mm -hmm. you shoot high up, you kind of cut that out. So you, you, that's what they're doing. But I'm always saying to people, we have a trick for this, right? We call I call it the turtle. So as you put the camera <laughs> out, like go sideways, tighten that neck muscle up, come down and look straight into the camera, all Zoolander style. And yes. you've got three seconds to take the picture before the turkey gobble falls down. Now, Rachel, <laughs> you don't have this problem, but for the rest of the world, the 95%, the rest of us, this bit comes down right here. So people, Chin up, tighten, down, pierce. And don't forget what Rachel said, that little twinkle in the eye, that little relax the mouth, breathe, window light. You've got breathe, it. Yes. Love it. Fantastic. <laughs> there you go, people. Um, how fun, how much fun it is to have you on. You've done so well. We've got something on this show called Last Orders. It's a sort of a little roundup, a little sort of quick action, um, sort of, you know, q and I, I, I think I'm sure your game is pretty simple stuff. Okay. Here we go. Okay. Um, if you could have, Rachel, any other profession, what would it be? Oh, well, any other profession? I feel like what I'm moving into right now is like my dream profession, which is just getting to document my, my life on YouTube. That's basically it. She's living the dream is what she's trying to say. You should all feel incredibly <laughs> guilty because if any, anyone else has asked, you know, they could do anything else, like be an astronaut or, you know, go to the bottom of it's the sea in submarines or I don't know, perhaps those are just little boys dreams. But it seems to me, Rachel, just documenting your life for Instagram is the dream job. There you have it, people. Yeah, this could living be the yours. dream. All right, here's another one for you, slightly different. Um, if you had to describe yourself as any kitchen utensil, which utensil would you be? Oh my gosh, that's so funny. The first one that popped into my head is a whisk. I don't, don't really know why. Um, I think it's because uh, it's a little crazy and you can uh, blend things together really well to make one really great creation. I'm going to go with that. There you go. She's whisking it up for us right here, right now. Rachel Cook on the Shakel and Surge show. Um, in the movie of your life, who would you have play you? Wait, what was that? Oh, a movie of my life. A movie of your life. Who would you like to have act for you in your on, as as you? Oh, wow, that's a great question. Um, I would say Jennifer Aniston, just because I think she's so cute and fun. <laughs> There you go. Okay, Jennifer Anderson, I can see, I think she's lucky to have, to, I think you could play her, and she'd be very happy too, the other way around. <laughs> um, what floats your boat and what gets your goat? Ooh, what floats my boat is really good music and deep conversations. And what was the other one? Basically what, what I don't what like. Get, what, gets my, what gets your goat? What, what gets your my goat? um is when uh, people can't move on and let go or myself there you go <laughs> move on move on get over it um final question super easy shaken or stirred rachel uh shaken definitely Whisked. that a whole nother flavor whisked with whisked. whisked sure for sure <laughs> 
Thank you so much, Rachel Cook on the Shaken and Stirred Show. Guys, you can check us out on at Shaken and Stirred Show. And Rachel Cook, you can find her at Rachel Cook, but it's the Cook is spelled, I think, with two zeros. Am I not right? Yeah. Yes, it is. There you go. And you can also find her on, um, I guess you have a YouTube channel, which is YouTube uh, forward slash Rachel Cook. Um, and what is your website? It's rachelcook.com, no? MeetRachelCook.com. Meet. Yeah. Meet. There you go. You can actually meet her. And it is subscription-based, <laughs> people, so you can actually have a little chat. Um, yes. If you are so lucky, just imagine you could be you and Rachel. Um, <laughs> wow. Uh, can I get a free subscription? No, I was joking. Um, but hey. I think I, think I can email I, me I, later, Rachel. No, sure. Normally, Rachel, normally Nigel at this point has, has, has managed to kind of, he likes the word segue. He likes chucking something inside. <laughs> Normally at this point, he would have had a great idea of a collaboration that you guys could have, but he hasn't come up with it, which I'm rather amazed by, because to me, it seems that the one thing that actually everybody does want to really learn how to do, and I know we've just covered it a little bit here, is, is the art of the selfie. Now you've got the world, world fa famous fashion photographer, um, and you've got yourself. Um, I, I feel a collaboration coming on. I don't know, there's something there. Anyway, I'll let you talk about it. But, how to selfie tutorial i'll have to speak to robert <laughs> voltaire and see if he doesn't mind you know if, if i step on his territory but um fantastic i would ha would love 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 to photograph you that goes without doubt and we'll have to make that. that happen we'll have to make yes. that very very yes, soon yes let's do it <laughs> thank you guys so much <laughs> absolutely all the best Thank you very much for listening. That is Shaken and Stirred. We will be back next week with another podcast and another fantastic guest. And uh, stay safe. See ya.